your state, your team, your show. This is Sports Nightly. Fourth and a half yard at the six of Colorado. Now it's going to be an empty set. Snap back. Adrian's going to run off the right side. He's in there for a first down. He's in there for a touchdown. Nebraska takes the lead back here at Folsom Field. Now let's check the pulse of Husker Nation with your hosts, Greg Sharp and Ben McLaughlin. And thank you. Welcome to the Tuesday edition of Sports Highly. So glad you have chosen to spend some time with us here tonight on this hot day. Certainly feels like summer outside, doesn't it? It is near 100 degrees in Lincoln here this afternoon. We're uh, re- we're going to see an old friend in the show here tonight, the Big Ten Blitz, making a return. We did not have a chance with everybody shutting down during spring practice to kind of go around the league and check out what's been happening. But now with football teams kind of coming back to their campuses, we thought we would revive that during the month of June and kind of peek ahead to the fall with what some of these teams are looking at doing. Tonight we're going to check in on Illinois, Purdue, and Indiana. We don't play the Hoosiers, but the Hoosiers may be a pretty good football team. So we'll hear from our contributors at those three spots here in this hour of Sports Nightly. After we got done last night with the program, the head football coach, Scott Frost, did put out a statement, Ben, as it relates to all the issues that we're dealing with as a country right now. I'm going to read part of it, not all of it, but part of it. The recent tragedies in this country are unacceptable. The senseless deaths that have occurred are inexcusable. We should all stand up against racism of any kind. It should have no place in this world. I am hurting for our communities, our state, and our country, and I'm hurting for the black community and the black members of our team and our coaching staff. We all respond to pain and grief in different ways. I've been raised to turn to faith and prayer. The statement went on, and then in big, bold letters uh, toward the bottom, he put, Please be safe, Nebraska. Uh, your thoughts about the head coach's statement? We we know he he's a man of faith. He he's not afraid to mention that, and he mentions prayer uh, in, in his uh, statement that he put out last night on a number of different times. But your thoughts about the message from the head football coach? Yeah, I mean, I thought I think it's important. I think it's important for anybody, any leader, uh, whether it be a coach, a teacher, uh, somebody that has um, you know African American people uh under their eye working for them uh whatever the case may be i think it's important for for those people to know that their leader is behind them and and, ha- and shares those same values because um you know if you don't share the same fundamental beliefs on on life and society it's going to make it hard for that person to want to work for you that person to want to uh play for you that person to want to be around you i mean i think you know, it's important for those leaders to stand up. We've seen a lot of them do so. We've seen tons of coaches. Um, you know, we've seen Fred Hoiberg and Amy Williams, as you talked about yesterday. We've seen a lot of coaches kind of stand up for their players and, and not just their players, but their staffs and, and all the families involved, too. So it was great that Coach Frost got involved and, and shared that message with his black student athletes and his fellow coaches and their families that, you know, he has their back and that won't be tolerated at Nebraska and really – the kind of caveat to this, Greg, is send a message to the Husker people, to the Nebraska family that, you know, this is the stance that they're going to take. And, you know, there are people out there that support Husker athletics that don't feel that way and, and have a certain set of beliefs that this isn't what, what falls in line. And, you know, it's, it's a tough stance to take knowing you're going to isolate some of your fans, but, you know, at the end of the day, um, a scoreboard doesn't mean anything when it comes to 
the precious gift of life. So it was it was important and needed for Coach Frost to do that. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I was I was looking for that statement all day yesterday. It didn't come while we were on the air, uh, but I'm so I'm glad it did because I think I think his players need to hear that. I think that his players need to feel that he has their back. I think they know that, but I think it was important for him to do that. And and he mentioned his coaches. He has a handful of African American coaches on his staff. I think they probably were glad to hear that. Not that they don't believe that the coach has their back in this situation, but to publicly say it, I think is important for him to do. And so I was glad to see that come out last night from the head football coach. We mentioned that yesterday was the first day that the voluntary workouts could begin on campus. We were also um, told last week, even by Bill Moose, that, that you know 70 or 75 of the Huskers were already here. This was a week ago and that more would be coming. I saw more guys tweeting today that they were flying into town. I saw some of the true freshmen saying that they were uh, now in town. And once they get here, they're going to have to have a little 48-hour quarantine to make sure and get tested and make sure they're okay before they can start workouts. But it's coming together. We're getting more and more student-athletes here. And you just think about going back to when you were a freshman going off to college for the first time. One, it's a, it's a big deal. It's a huge thing. What's really bad is a lot of them are having to come on their own. They can't bring their families with them because they're kind of put in, they're getting put up in different parts around campus at the point this point in time. But uh, it's too bad they can't have kind of the proper send off that they have. But I know a lot of them are really excited about getting to Lincoln and start to get to know their teammates even better than they have uh, to this point in time. We're just coming up for a couple of recruiting visits, especially considering the uncertainty of, of that fact a month ago. Knowing w- would that even be possible, or would they even be able to come? To Lincoln, would air travel be shut down? Uh, will, will the campus be open? Do they have a place to go to stay? Are their dorms going to be open? Do they have places to eat? Um, and then you throw in, you know, kind of the gas on the fire, which is what's happening kind of in our society with the racial tensions, too. You know, a lot of these kids are leaving home for the first time and they're going to be worried about what's happening in their hometown. What's worried mm-hmm. about, they're going to be worried about what's happening in their cities, what's happening with their families. So this isn't like a normal send off where. You know, you maybe have a big party with all your friends and family and then, you know, you you leave the next day and, you know, you're it's just business as usual. It's it's not the case. That's hard enough to to have your attention away from home with no coronavirus, with no racial tensions. Just as as it stands to just be on your on your own and be by yourself for the first time. Now, a couple of the guys that were. Uh, coming to Lincoln today, Ronald Delancey and Marcus Fleming from Miami Northwestern, at least, um, you know, they, they came together. So, you know, they, they knew one another. But a lot of these guys don't come with anybody. They're coming by themselves and they're getting to know these guys for the first time. That's a very difficult thing to do. And then you add, you know, what's kind of happening today on top of it. And it's going to be a fir- it's going to be a tough first couple of weeks for these kids that are coming for the first time and being away from home. You know, I think back, Ben, to, to some of the falls where football season will be underway and we're seeing the players a lot more often Tuesday press gather, Monday press gather, whatever it may be. And, and t- take the Florida players, for for instance. You mentioned Marcus Fleming and, and uh, Jaden Francois coming up today. But like a hurricane might be hitting Florida in September. Football season's going on, and those guys are worried about their families and their neighborhoods back home maybe getting hit hard by – torrential rain and winds and they're in college and distracted a little bit trying to think about a game plan get ready to play somebody on saturday and they're not sure what's happening back home it's a it's a it's a tough thing for 18 19 20 year olds to be dealing with 
Well, it's not just that, too. I mean, I think that that's not just for newer players. That's for everybody, right? I mean, that's for all the players. And, you know, there there are so many things that – and we, we talk about this sometimes probably not enough – that these student-athletes are dealing with off the field, off the court, that we don't ever talk about, you know, with grades, with relationships, with, um, you know, situations back home whether it be girlfriends you know, yeah i mean there's there's all kinds of things that happen that uh these guys aren't robots you know they don't just show up and play the same and feel the same all the time um you know it's there, there's a lot of variables and a lot of moving parts and they have to find a way to put all that aside when it's time to shine in the lights and a lot, a lot of times that's a bunch easier said than done and i think we kind of lose sight of that sometimes that you know a lot of times players are dealing with things a lot bigger than them, you know, on the home front. Lamar Jackson had a son last year, so he's busy being being a dad. And, um, you know, Tommy Armstrong, when he came here to Nebraska, got sent to Texas his senior year in high school because his mom was misplaced during Hurricane Katrina and didn't have a place for them to live. So Tommy had to go live uh, with his dad in Texas and, you know, got noticed by a lot more schools in Texas at Cibolo Steel High School, found a way to Nebraska. It's just there's a lot of – moving parts to these kids lives that we don't think and talk about all the time and it's even worse right now with the coronavirus and you know with the you know african-american males that are and females that are finding their way to campus for the first time worrying about are they going to be safe in their new place and yeah um you know there's just a lot on these guys plates and these girls plates that uh you know we need to we need to look a little further than if a guy missed a block or dropped a pass or missed an open jump shot well said, and something we don't, and I, I'm guilty of this too, don't point that out nearly enough, that again, these are 18, 19, 20-year-old kids away from home for the first time, and it's hard when you hear the criticism that college athletes get. Um, I love the passion. Fans are passionate. That's great. They love their Huskers, uh, but sometimes, you know, when you're, you're going to be critical of somebody, try to keep some of that in mind. With you, we're going to dust something off tonight that we haven't done in about seven months. It's a segment we do about Big Ten football. We call it the Big Ten Blitz. The Big Ten Blitz. Purdue. And the Watermakers up first. Mike Carmen of the Journal Courier joins us. Mike, hope you're doing well, and thanks for being with us again tonight. What's um, are, are athletes back on campus yet? What, what, are the, what are the Watermakers doing, or when do they expect to arrive? Well, the fact that you're doing the Big Ten Blitz means we're going to have football, right? <laughs> sure, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, they they arrive. Football team uh, scheduled to be here on Monday, and then they're going to phase in the other sports, uh, basketball, the both basketball teams, uh, on the 15th of June and then the 22nd of June. But football is supposed to arrive and start their voluntary workouts next Monday. All right, not many people got much spring practice in, if any, for the Boilermakers, new defensive coordinator to try to get new schemes put in, and the quarterback spot. Update me on those two spots as we get ready to head into the summer months here. Uh, Purdue was fortunate enough to get eight practices in in spring before uh, their spring break hit, so uh, they got they got more than half of the spring practices in, and then Paul Nebraska keeping the help. Bob, Bob Yako is the new defensive coordinator. Uh, at Purdue, after spending last season at Louisiana Tech, uh, they're, they're using a three-four as kind of their base defense. Uh, they, you know, as every defensive coordinator says, they'll be multiple, all that kind of stuff. But uh, I, I would expect Purdue to be in the three-four uh, when when things start out, uh, and then they'll adjust for there. 
far as the quarterback position goes, uh, they've added a graduate transfer from UCLA, Austin Burton, who will be in, be in the mix with Jack Fumler and uh, Aiden O'Connell. And, you know, that was a little bit of a surprise uh, because that happened uh, during uh, the, the pandemic. Uh, so that, that adds some life and some spice uh, to, to what we might see from a quarterback standpoint at Purdue. He's certainly going to have weapons to throw to, Mike. I, I don't know if there's a better duo of wide receivers in the league is Moore and Bell. Would you agree? Uh, it, it'd be hard to dispute that, but I think Purdue fans just want to see them on the field together. Uh, very limited time last year. They were on the field uh, at the same time uh, before Rondell got hurt against Minnesota in late uh, September, and then David Bell took off uh, from there. But if, you, if Purdue can get both those guys on the field at the same time, it not only creates opportunities for both those guys, but everybody else uh, in the offense, assuming the offensive line can hold up and the quarterback can get some protection. Uh, Purdue, Purdue has a chance to really excel in the, in the passing game this year. Mike, you mentioned Bob Diaco. What what does he have to work with? What, what, are, what are the problem spots for him stepping into this in year one? Well, he has, what he has to work with right now is George Colossus, who will remain at one of the defensive ends. If Lorenzo Neal can come back healthy, uh, he'll be their nose guard. Uh, he's an NFL-type player. He didn't play all last year. He injured his, injured his knee at the end of the 2018 season. Uh, and if he's healthy, uh, that's a pretty good uh, one-two punch uh, beginning. The issue to me in going to 3-4 is Purdue's just not very deep at the linebacker spot. And now you're throwing, trying to throw four linebackers out there. Uh, they've added junior college guy, Derek Barnes, uh, who played one of the end positions last year, moved back to his natural position of linebacker, so that gives him a little bit of strength there. But uh, they just don't have a lot of depth at that spot. I'm curious how that kind of plays out throughout, throughout the year. Mike, Nebraska is not open with a conference game in almost two decades. Purdue has. They played Northwestern a couple of years ago. Just talk about how big a game it is right out of the gate to start with a league game. Yeah, Purdue had a home game against Northwestern. Uh, they, they got behind early and you know tried to make a game of it late. But yeah, it, it, it's such an important game because not only a conference game, but a, but a West Division game that can really affect your placing as you get deeper into the season. So uh, this is, a, I think, this is a big challenge for both teams. Uh, they seem to be somewhat evenly matched. They both have similar questions and uh, they both have similar strengths. So. Uh, assuming we can uh, kick off the football season on time, it should be a, a great matchup. No doubt. Mike Carmen of the Journal Courier. Mike, we appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Illinois. And here to talk about the Illini, Steve Kelly of the Illinois Network. Mr. Kelly, I guess one of the big stories out of, out of the Champaign area has been that Lovey Smith shaved the beard. Is that right? I guess that's how slow a news day it is, huh? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he did shave that uh, signature beard uh, last week. I would think that thing probably got pretty hot, but he had it for a couple of years. But uh, there's not much else to talk about right now. Hopefully that'll change soon. No doubt. Well, Lovey had a heck of a season last year getting Illinois into a bowl game. They had the big upset of Wisconsin. How much momentum do you sense for the program with, with Coach Smith now? That's a great question because, you know, Outside looking in, you might say, you know, they had a lot of momentum, but inside, covering every day like I do, they did, 
but yet they lost the last three games after they clinched that bowl eligibility. When they beat Michigan State, they were 6-4 and four after that. Then they lost at Iowa. Not a huge surprise, but then they were dominated at home by Northwestern in the season finale. Brandon Peters didn't play. And then they lost the bowl game, so they ended up 6-7. and seven. The fact they went to a bowl game, I think, does provide some the momentum. This year's schedule sets up for uh, what should be a pretty quick start, but uh, hopefully we'll build into some back-to-back bowl games. That hasn't happened uh, consistently here for a long time. It's been a while, if memory serves, Steve, that they haven't really had a quarterback controversy or unknown figure. That's different this year, right, with Brandon Peters back to engineer that offense. Yeah, he's the, the no-doubt starter. As long as he doesn't get hurt, he did miss two games last year with injuries, but he still passed for almost 1,900 yards and 18 touchdowns and was uh, pretty effective in those games. He's the uh, front runner for sure. They've got to replace a pretty solid veteran running backs in Reggie Corbin and Dre Brown, who were around the program. Uh, Dre Brown was around for five years and had a chance to be around for six years, but he decided not to stay. So they'll have to find some guys there. They've got some decent receivers back question will be defensively. I think the offensive line is a veteran uh, strong group. Questions will be on the defensive side of the ball again, I think. Yeah, let's let's go there next. And, and obviously, you, you better be able to play good defense in the league because these offenses are getting cranked up more and more. Where does it start? Where where are the bigger, the bigger question marks on that side of the ball in your eyes? Well, I think it starts right there on the defensive line. It, it's just funny, as, as this game evolves over the years, you've covered it a long time, so have I, but it always kind of comes down to the line play, certainly as one of the keys is going into every season and even every game and every play, if you want to break it down that much. And can your line handle the other line? If so, you'll be successful. So I think they need a little help there. Uh, they lost uh, a good linebacker in Daley Harding uh, to graduation. They'll need to replace him. They've got some veterans. Now, you haven't been able to say that about Illinois teams in the past. Well, really, since Levy Smith has been here, they've always been one of the younger teams in the country. They've got more seniors this year than they've ever had. So they've got guys that have played. And because they have played and the way things went when they played, they've taken some lumps. So maybe they feel that their turn to deliver some lumps. Well, Steve, uh, I know the moratorium for workouts was lifted by the NCAA for yesterday. Here in Nebraska, some kids have already started to, to get in the weight room and do some of that thing. What's what's happening in, on the campus in Champaign? Are, are some of the football players back and starting to lift a little bit? Yeah, some are back. Um, Alex Falcheski, one of the offensive linemen, we had him on a Saturday show, and he, he had just gotten back to town. But uh, the plan was, they announced last week they were going to start football and men's basketball players kind of coming back in uh, waves uh, beginning uh, June 3rd, which is tomorrow. I think they're going to, if the guys hadn't already been back, I think they might, given everything that's been going on around the country this week and late last week, they might bump that into next week for some. Uh, They keep emphasizing these are voluntary uh, workouts and voluntary times to come back. So uh, they'll be getting that done. Uh, It may not be quite as quick. Some guys are back, some are on the way, and some are just kind of standing by to wait uh, for words from Lovey Smith and Josh Whitman and the administration. Steve Kelly with the Illini Network. Steve, as always, we appreciate it. 
And we look forward to seeing you. We'll talk to you before, but we'll see you out there in October. That'll be uh, the second of, at least I hope, if the schedule goes the way it goes, that'll be the second of uh, back-to-back road games for Illinois to open the Big Ten season. Indiana. Let's talk Hoosiers with Zach Osterman of the Indianapolis Star. Zach, let's just start with with the team. Are they back on campus, coming back on campus? What's kind of the timeline to get this offseason workouts underway for Tom Allen's team? Nothing's official yet, although I would expect that, you know, sort of plans for a restart, if you want to say that, to come very soon. Um, my understanding is athletes have been making their way back to campuses. You know, I, I think some may not have left, or at least may have kind of, kind of dribbled back into, you know, into town over the last, God, what's it been? Three months? Feels like it's been a long time. You know, I, I think that there are probably a number that are already here, and I think what you're going to see is probably sometime in the middle of this month. That would be my guess for Indiana to try and ramp up. Some athletics activity, and like everywhere else, it'll come back, you know, kind of in stages. It's not like they're just going to bring all of their athletes back at once, um, but they certainly are moving in the direction of getting things fired up again. Zach, I want to talk about Peyton Ramsey. Was, was that a surprise, a shock to the folks, and what does that do now to that position moving into the fall? No. Well, I guess what you'd say is that it, it – it, it won't have been a situation where anyone would have begrudged Ramsey's the decision um, because I think, you know, remember Michael Penix won that job in, in fall camp last year when he was healthy. Uh, he was very, very good himself. You know, if you take either of those guys and you take their, you know, completion percentages and you take their yards per attempt numbers, yards per completion numbers. I apologize. I'm, I'm on my back deck right now because <laughs> uh, my toddler's inside. And uh, so you're getting a little bit of the gnat sound of suburban Bloomington. If there's such a thing as suburban Bloomington versus urban Bloomington, this is what you're getting. It's um, adding, ob- adding ambiance to it. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, Michael Penix had a very good redshirt freshman year in his own right last season. Um, I swear they're not coming for me. At least I don't think so. <laughs> um, I had a very good freshman, retro freshman season in his own right. He just couldn't stay healthy. He's added a lot of bulk this offseason. There's a you know a real feeling with both of Indiana's tackle positions pretty well managed at this point that Indiana feels confident they can keep him healthy. And so I guess this is all a roundabout way of saying it was likely going to be Michael Penix's position again this year. Peyton Ramsey was very, very good last season no one took that for granted but Michael Penix was still probably the quarterback of the future for Indiana so if Ramsey had stayed to fight it out I think Indiana would have been more than happy to uh to have him I've you know I can count on one hand the number of players I've been around that were more universally respected in the locker room than Peyton Ramsey but I also think everybody understood that you know with one year of eligibility left he graduated in May you know, this is Ramsey's opportunity to go somewhere where he's going to get a chance to play a lot uh, with one season left in college. Zach, it, without spring ball, what, what do you think concerns Coach Allen the most as he sits here in early June looking toward the fall? You know, I think there's a, a couple things. Number one, if there's one thing with Penix, you know, this is the this was the offseason where he was the guy, and he knew that, and he embraced it, and I think he kind of tried to walk that walk. You know, I mean, this is his third full year in the program, so he's, he's young, 
by quarterback standards, but it's not like he's new to the program. He's a redshirt sophomore who early enrolled his freshman year, so he's been around a lot of these guys a long time. But I think he probably still would have liked to have, you know, that time for him to just be on the field, leading huddles, leading drills, you know, being just, you know, learning. I mean, listen, very few college athletes are just sort of born with the innate confidence to just step into a huddle and take complete command. Some are, but many need time. And I think that there would have been a lot of value for Indiana in giving Michael Penix. They got through four practices, giving him all 15, though, to kind of be the man and really get that experience, if that makes sense. And then, you know, beyond that, you know, the truth is Indiana did return a lot or does return a lot. Even with Peyton Ramsey going, um, they'll get three offensive line starters back and they'll probably plug at least one fifth-year player, if not two fifth-year players, into the other positions. They're going to get their top two receivers back. They're getting, you know, I think they have the, according to uh, Bill Conley's S&P Plus stuff, they have the most returning production percentage-wise on defense of any team in the Big Ten. So, you know, to be honest, there may not be, Indiana may be as well-positioned as one can be in this incredibly unusual situation to have actually kind of ridden this out. Now, I think the, the one question, if, if I'm Tom Allen, is what is the summer going to look like? Are, are we going to get to adopt, at least for one year, a more NFL-style summer with OTAs and training camps, you know, it, something more like that, something more intensive and hands-on between coaches and players than the normal where coaches just can't see players, can't work with players for large swaps in the summer because I think then you're still losing something. You're still obviously losing some really important time on task. But I think that if Indiana is is able to get maybe a, an amended summer that looks a little bit more like a an extended preseason or almost like a spring, you know, an abbreviated spring practice flowing into the preseason, um, I, I actually think Indiana's probably in a, a pretty good spot. You've got some, you know, holes to fill, some questions to answer. And like I said, the big thing for me would have been Michael Penix. Um, but even then, you know, you're talking about a guy who uh, was declared the starter last season, you know, had some very, very good games in his own right, put up some really, really good stats. It's not like you're breaking in a brand new quarterback. Um, you know, if there's been one blessing amidst all of this chaos for Indiana, it's that, you know, this is a team with a lot of institutional memory coming back. Zach Osterman of the Indianapolis Star. As always, Zach, we appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. We think them up. We count them down. It's Top 10 Tuesdays on Sports Nightly. And Top 10 Tuesday brought to you by Union Bank and Trust. All your banking needs are taken care of by real people who really care. Stop by and you'll see that you belong here. Union Bank and Trust, member FDI. See, all right, Ben McLaughlin, you had the uh, – this is your idea tonight. What are we doing? What's our topic? Since uh, SNBL has kind of taken over our lives, we have uh, we've, we've talked about a lot of these guys already on stream, and we're seeing a lot of them play on our, on our SNBL streams. But in real life, top ten baseball players we've never seen in person that we'd love to have watched play a game. So um, – Ironically enough, there are guys that I watch every day on the stream that are on my list, and uh, and one of them is going to kick us off at number ten. He is actually a 
member of the Ro Orman Rowboats. I've got Ken Griffey Jr. here at number Junior. 10. Never got to watch him play. Uh, grew up idolizing him. I, as a left-handed hitter in the backyard playing wiffle ball, tried to emulate that sweet swing with the backwards hat. Um, I mean, he was every kid's my age hero. So never got to see him play. Would love to see him play in his prime. I've got Griffey at number 10. Isn't that amazing that the backwards hat is kind of the image we all have of Junior? That oh, yeah. smile. He, he, he was all, seemed like he was always smiling. That was a, a great look and miss, miss watching him play. That's a good one. Austin? First of all, that's MVP candidate Ken Griffey Jr. If Ty <laughs> Cobb keeps sliding, he will be the American League MVP. I kept my list to all current players. I tried to limit myself to that. Guys, I would want to watch for this coming season. So number 10 for me is Jorge Soler, another guy I haven't actually seen play a game in person. I would just be interested to see what he could do. Now, could he replicate what he did last year? Maybe he wouldn't break the club record for home runs again. Uh, but you can see why Dayton Moore went after him in that trade package. You know, light tower power, solar power, always entertaining to watch a baseball fly 480 feet. This yes. is going to be an interesting group of, of names because I went with guys that I never saw play either on TV or in person. So I'm going to have a lot of old school people in my list. This is going to be fun as we make our way through this. So my number 10 is Jolton Joe DiMaggio, the man that owns a 56-game hitting streak, 325 career batting average, 361 home runs, Three MVPs. Three MVPs. Uh, so Joe DiMaggio makes my list at number 10. He is not a member of SNBL. Really hard for me to pick New York Yankees. I mean, you could pick any <laughs> yeah. handful of those guys, and it would have been an acceptable answer. Mickey Mantle, Yogi Berra, Roger Maris. I mean, I don't know how you choose one of those over the other. Um, I don't think I had any of those guys on my list, but very easily could have been ironically enough my number nine is uh, another legend on the other players team the hickman harriers have willie mays i would love to see willie patrol center field um did it like unlike anybody else at that time play center field and oh by the way wasn't a terrible hitter either i think just in terms of excitable players who had all the five tools willie mays is probably right at the top of the list i'm surprised you didn't have him higher ben well, he's destroyed my team in batting like 800 <laughs> against the Outlaws, so he's lucky he made the cut at all. I'll stick in that division for my number nine, Clayton Kershaw, one of my favorite players of all time. Really hard to cheer against him. Such a great dude. Would have loved to have seen him bust off you know, public enemy number one in person once or twice just to, to get that magical effect, see that lefty curveball go tumbling down. And this coming year, I was interested to see if he could remain in that upper echelon of pitchers. It seems like he's taking a little bit of a step back, not a big step, but he's not quite in the same tier as Scherzer and DeGrom. He is getting older. So I would have been really interested to see how Clayton Kershaw handled this 2019 baseball campaign. I think we have seen the best of Clayton Kershaw. I think he is on the backside of his career, but, but with no doubt the best pitcher of about a 10-year period of MLB. My number nine is a guy that's in SNBL, and that's Stan Musial. I believe he's on Hong Kong's team. Musial played for the Cardinals from 41 to 63. He missed a couple of years because of World War II service. 3,630 hits, career 331 batting average, 475 home runs. Statue out in front of Bush Stadium in St. Louis. He's the man in St. Louis. Stan, the man, Musial is my number nine. Awesome. Uh, my number eight, I'm throwing it back to the 1900s, early 1900s. I've got the big train, Walter Johnson. Nice. Here, here at, at number eight. You know, I, I'm reading a book right now 
uh, about just the history of baseball, and I'm just starting to get to a section on the big train from Humboldt, Kansas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, you, you read all the, the, the folklore and you hear the stories about Walter Johnson, about um, how hard he threw back then was unlike anything they had ever seen. Um, you know, one of the uh, the first five into the Hall of Fame, the Immortal Five, along with some others that, that might make the list later, but um, over 400 wins, basically every pitching record out there, he's on the list, if not leading it, then in the top five. And uh, more of anything, other than just his statistics, I think curiosity factor, if I were to watch him play, I'd bring a radar gun just to see what somebody was actually throwing in the early 1900s compared to what they are right now. There are some scientists that say it was probably somewhere in the low 90s back then, but nobody threw that hard no. back then. So it uh, doesn't seem like, like much now, but compared to what some of those other guys were throwing, uh, it, was, it wasn't like anything they had seen before. Maybe the hardest thrower till who? Bob Feller, perhaps? Yeah, could be. Maybe. Number eight for me, I've got Christian Yelich. I've liked him dating back to his time in Miami, but I really became a fan of his when he made that run with Team USA in the World Baseball Classic. That was just so much fun to watch that team. Yelich was a big part of that, and again, just seems like a good dude. He's really burst onto the scene with Milwaukee. Always good for a show. Did we? I don't. He played in that game you and I went to, Ben, didn't he? Yelich against the Dodgers. Sure, he, he well, did. Yeah, he he had to. Sure, have. he did. I don't, yeah. I don't think he. I don't think he sat out. That was not a good day for the Brew Crew. No, it was not. They, they got Aaron Perez got on the mound that day. Yes, he did. He was throwing <laughs> 58 miles per hour. And then he reared back and fired one in the 80s. You're like, what yeah, the heck? Yeah, he did. Yeah. Yeah. All right, my number eight, I am going to the Negro Leagues. Josh Gibson. Man, would I have loved to have seen this guy play. He played from 1930 to 1946. And in his Wikipedia page, guys, it says he hit somewhere between 800 and 1,000 home runs. They don't have an accurate count. There weren't a lot of all-time box scores for some of those leagues. But he was kind of known as the Black Babe Ruth of that era. I would have loved to watch him take BP, watch him for a series of games. That have been that would have been a blast. No doubt. All right, on to number seven. My number seven, I'm going to one of the next Immortal Five and another member of the Sports Nightly Baseball League, this time the Minneapolis Mammoth Ty Cobb. Um, not only would I want to see his ability to pitch, but this, this was the guy that I thought of when we, when we thought of the topic because he was a big topic of conversation on one of our streams the other day just about uh, the two sides that, that tend to be with Ty Cobb, those that believe that he was the worst human to being to walk the earth and then <laughs> those other uh, much smaller percentage of people that try to discredit all those uh, those stories that, that that were incorrect. I would just want to see his temperament. What was he really like? I'd want to see yeah. for myself. I think I would need more than one game to watch him to do that. But just to have my own opinions, not rely on old stories, folklore, uh, you know, books that may or may not be accurate. I'd, I'd want to know for myself. So watching Ty Cobb play, uh, watch his skill, but also watch him. Uh, navigate <laughs> a game and the mannerisms that he possess. Has he cooled off in SNBO, guys? I think he has. Oh, yeah. He's he? down to like 320 with the average. Uh-huh. Maybe maybe a little under that. So he's dropped about 30 points, but I think he has 44 homers and over 110 RBIs. So he's doing okay. Still an all right baseball player, despite 
getting out sometimes. Number seven for me, the guy with the best nickname in baseball right now, Juan Soto, the childish Bambino. Fantastic nickname. <laughs> fits him perfectly. One of the best young hitters in the game. He's becoming a much better all-around player and just a lot of fun. You watch him, you can't help but have a good time. So Juan Soto is my number seven. I think he's the star of the next decade. I really do. And he was he was for a short time a member of the Hickman Harriers. But I think <laughs> he's short the time. I think he's the next super superstar in baseball. My seven, Sandy Koufax. Twelve year career got cut short by arm issues. Uh, he was an MVP, not just a Cy Young, but an MVP, which is hard to do in baseball terms. Won the Cy Young three different times. Helped the Dodgers win a couple of World Series titles. And you still see him at Dodger games. He still goes to a lot of Dodger games and looks great. So Sandy Koufax would have loved to watch him pitch, work, them, work a game, work the hitters. He's my number seven. I would want to stand in the box just to see what a Sandy Koufax curveball looks yeah. like. Still yeah. one of the best curveballs. Um, and all of baseball in the history of baseball. Uh, my number six, this is the first member on my list that is not in the Sports Nightly Baseball League. I'm going with Ted Williams in Boston. Anybody that can hit over 400, uh, left-handed hitter. I, you know, those epic battles that he had with DiMaggio, uh, I, I loved that. I did, I did a, a report on him in, in school. And just the pure intrigue that I have for Ted Williams, of course, serving his time along with Joey D overseas in World War II, uh, cutting into both of their careers. But I would, I would just want to hear the sound of the bat that he made and just watch him swing. Ted Williams for me, my number six. Number six for me used to play on Ted Williams' team, but no longer. Mookie Betts you know, would have been in probably the best lineup in his career in Los Angeles going into this season. Might never see him play in Dodger Blue before he hits free agency, but if nothing else, I can at least go watch him on the PBA Tour if baseball doesn't get back. What, what, did, what did they get for him? Did the Sox get anything David, for him? Well, they, uh, they, they sent David Price over as well, and they got, uh, was it Jock Peterson? Can't remember who they sent over, but I mean, that's a heck of a player. And I know he was a year away from free agency, but man, I, it just seems odd that you trade a guy like that. Why, Boston's got deep pockets. How come you don't re-sign him? I, I, that didn't make sense at all during the offseason. All right, my number six, Jackie Robinson. Uh, ben talked about Willie Mays being a five-tool guy. Jackie kind of was too. Not as much power, obviously, as Willie Mays had. Named the MVP during his career. Broke the color line in baseball in 1947. Um, a lot of respect for him as an athlete. He was a great basketball player, track athlete at UCLA. Uh, just would have liked to watch his game. Jackie was a was 11 on my list. He was a tough cut. I, I chose Griffey over, over Jackie Robinson, so glad you had him on there. My number five, I've got the Ryan Express here at number five. I'd, I'd love to watch Nolan Ryan pitch, not only to see that, that famous fastball in Nolan Ryan Express, but I'd also want to see that devastating 12-6 curveball there's a reason why um, he had over 300 wins in his career he's an eight-time all-star and 5,700 strikeouts uh, is a record that might not be touched maybe ever so yeah uh, Nolan Ryan for me watching him pitch at number five to answer the question about the uh, bets trade before my number five the Red Sox got back Orman Rowboats legend Alex Verdugo as well as prospects Jeter Downs and Connor Wong okay Ooh. so they, they may end up being okay that I think they'll do fine. Yeah. Also doing fine. Cody Bellinger, a guy I haven't gotten to watch in person, but I have gotten to watch on the stream. He is the right fielder for the rowboats, and it, it's an adventure sometimes, I will admit, but it's been fun watching Bellinger on stream, so I'd like to see him in person as well. 
Yeah, he and Yelich may be battling for years for the MVP. With Soto. That Nash- yeah, and, and Soto in that National League. Yeah, those three guys are the up-and-comers in that league. My number five, Satchel Page. Pitched both in the Negro, in the Negro Leagues and also in Major League Baseball. The, the joke about Satchel Page is nobody was ever quite certain how old he was. They felt like he yeah. was a lot older than he would ever lead up to, to be. Um, didn't have a great Major League Baseball record, but had a good ERA at 3.29. But just the style of pitching that he had, uh, they said he mixed pitches really well. He had a lot of arm movement, body movement when he made pitches. I would have liked to have seen Satchel Page toe the rubber for a game. Absolutely. That's a great one. Um, and I guarantee he would have been on Brett Woody's list tonight had he participated really? in this. Brett's oh, a fan, yeah. huh? Big, big, big Satchel Page guy. Uh, my number four is a young man that passed away far too soon at the ripe age of 38. He was the first Latin American player to be a shrine to the National Baseball Hall of Fame. One of my favorite players of all time, Roberto Clemente. Um, just an absolute rifle from right field. Uh, we talk about Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier. This was a young man that helped break the barrier for Latin American players mm-hmm. and is an absolute hero for those uh, from the islands uh, off the coast of the United States. And, you know, he wasn't without his uh, share of, of, of racism and, uh, and taunts as well, but um, he was an all-star for 13 of his 18 seasons, played in 15 all-star games, NL batting leader, Hit 317, 3,000 career hits, MVP, World Series MVP. And and the thing that uh, is, is most impressive about him, again, is defense. 12-time Gold Glove Award winner and just an absolute hose in right field. And unfortunately for him, the, the plane crash that took his life at, at just 38 years old. Yeah, I'm glad you put him on there. Yeah, stud. Number four for me, another guy I could have gotten to see play in person but didn't get to because of injuries, Alberto Mondesi. I know we're all Royals fans here, and I think we're all waiting for Mondesi to take the leap. Ben waited as long as the, the trade deadline to see Mondesi he make gone. that leap. And, yes, he got one. <laughs> so, obviously, what, what Mondesi does when he's healthy is tantalizing unless he's playing for the Las Vegas Outlaws. He could be a Royals franchise cornerstone if he could stay on the field. I was hoping this could be the year. Not so sure. Yeah, I think his upside's still pretty good. I, I I wouldn't give up on him. I know Ben did, but I wouldn't give up on him. <laughs> now the yeah. Diamondbacks are about to punt on him too. I think. <laughs> my <laughs> my number four, Ben had at seven. Here's where I have Ty Cobb. For decades, had the hit record in Major League Baseball four thousand one hundred ninety one until Pete Rose finally was able to beat that back. But the Georgia Peach, my number four. Awesome. All right, on to the top three, and can't believe this guy wasn't higher on my list, but. Um, one of the one of the absolute greats in the history of baseball. He's got the most expensive baseball card known to man, known as the Flying Dutchman, Honus Wagner. Uh, you and Josh, just a, a, a gawky <laughs> shortstop. Uh, just a he's a big dude. He's not the most uh, pleasant to look at dudes. He's got a, a large large nose, but again, one of the first five members of the Hall of Fame. One of the immortal five and. Uh, just an absolute ball player to a T. And, you know, the thing that Josh and I were talking about on the stream the other day that, you know, Honus Wagner is remembered for, you know, you think about these great players, they're all tremendous athletes. Jackie Robinson, Willie Mays, Ken Griffey, just smooth athletes. That was not Honus Wagner. I mean, no. he was not uh, necessarily smooth in the way that he that he played the game. But can't argue with the stats. 329 career average, three. 1,400 career hits, 100 home runs, and 
um, just an absolute stud, uh, Honus Wagner, and one of the few guys that would stand up to old John McGraw back in the day uh, on the diamond. So I've got Honus, and um, and obviously he, he had some pretty epic battles with Ty Cobb as well. Did he play mostly with the Phillies? The Pirates. 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 Got you. Okay. Number three for me, uh, Josh Stomont. What? nascent royals at closer i think he was misused under the ned yost regime they didn't really let him work through a lot of his issues if he got much of a shot you know videos have come out from spring training even the work he's been doing at home 103.8 miles an hour on the radar gun that's a guy i would have liked to have seen given more of a shot and been able to maybe nail down that that closer role for the royals this year no doubt all right my number three i got babe ruth here uh 714 career home runs like uh, Ty Cobb's record of hits, Ruth's home run mark, lasted a long time until Hank Aaron beat it in 1973. Also a pitcher, a good one, uh, 2.28 ERA. I'm not sure why you'd take him out of your rotation, but some people have. Uh, <laughs> played for Boston and New York, and some say that uh, the, 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 the almost century-long drought for the Red Sox was because they traded Babe Ruth to the Yankees. For uh, for some play tickets for to help to help yeah. stage a play, and I think one big statistic you look at whether someone's worthy of a rotation spot is that old stat O slash B A, and if it's north of five hundred, uh, you're you're gonna lose your spot. Yeah. So that's gonna happen. Um, all right, my number two, Greg, you had at number eight. I've got Josh Gibson here, uh, mainly because of what you said. We all know that he was a great ball player. We all know that. Had he been in the major leagues, uh, he, he would have been a Hall of Famer. But the main reason why is there's just so much that's unknown about the life of Josh Gibson. A lot of it is, you know, those those Negro League tales that you hear, like he and Cool Papa Bell and, you know, them hitting the ball over light standards and Cool Papa Bell being so fast that, you know, he could flip the light switch in a hotel room and be in bed before the light turn <laughs> off. You know, that those type of stories is yeah. what you get with those players. And, I would love to just witness it in real life and and watch him play. But unfortunately, again, similar issues to what we're dealing with today, the color barrier and the and the Negro Leagues uh, never allowed him that opportunity because he would have been one of the game's best catchers even to this day. Something all three of us need to do is get to Kansas City and go to the Negro Leagues Hall of Fame. We, we all yep. got to do that. I've been there. It's yeah. phenomenal. I would go back well, and have. Heartbeat. I yeah. have okay. too. Yeah. I, have, I bought you... two books, actually. I bought a book. <laughs> I'm the one uh, that I'm actually working on right now that's about Josh Gibson and Satchel Paige. And so it's – I would go back in a heartbeat. You liked it, Austin? Oh, yeah. It was a great time. I think it's good enough that we can uh, – once everything calms down, we can take an all-staff field trip down there for a day. There we go. Number two for me is my favorite of kind of the young up-and-comers in baseball, Ronald Acuna. I, I love the way he plays the game. He was on the cusp of a 40-40 season last year. He and Ozzy Albies are a fun one-two duo there for that Braves lineup. It's just such a bummer. The Royals couldn't seal the deal with Ronald Acuna. Yeah. They were close to signing him, couldn't quite do that. Imagine having him in center field taking over for Lorenzo Kane instead of the revolving door they've had recently. Alcides Escobar pretty much hand-delivered him to the organization. Mm -hmm. Brought him to spring training camp and said, here you go, this is our guy. They didn't sign him. Goodness gracious. Too bad. Brutal. All right, my number two. This was hard for me not to make this guy number one because he's kind of been a a, a folk hero of mine, even though I never saw him play. Mickey Mantle, I have at number two. Maybe the game's greatest switch hitter of all time. Eddie Murray might be in that discussion as well. But 
536 home runs, three MVPs, won the Triple Crown, which means best batting average, RBIs, and home runs in a season back in 1956. Mickey Mantle is my number two. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, again, it's so hard to distinguish between those Yanks. You could have picked eras from the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, yeah. and the 60s and and been just on the same plane. And even, you know, in the in the, in the the 90s, in the 2000s, picks the Yankees too. Yeah, Jeter and uh, obviously Mariano Rivera, Roger Clemens, you know, take your pick. Was it, was it MLB that did an all-day Jeter thing in yes. the last uh, week or so? Why? Yeah. Really? That's a little over the top. I Come on. Uh, my number one, speaking of New York Yankees, he's a current member of the Las Vegas Outlaws, and yes, uh, one of the Immortal Five as well, Babe Ruth. How much of it was real? How much of it was hype? How much of it was stories? How real was the power? Did he really uh, point? Yeah. What What type of, I mean, we all know what kind of person he was, that flamboyant, excitable uh, fan favorite, but just to watch somebody like that, uh, hindsight so many years after the fact, it's a dream, and I think if I could live in an area, any era and watch any athlete of any time play, it's got to be the old number three, Babe Ruth. So he's my number one. Number one for me is my favorite baseball player of all time, Mike Trout. I was really looking forward to watching him play, see, see which legends he could have passed and went above replacement a couple other categories this year. We're losing at least part of a season of his prime, not a full season, and not for the reasons that guys like Williams and DiMaggio missed parts of their season, but... A year with Mike Trout playing baseball is better than a year without Mike Trout playing baseball. So underappreciated for what he is. It's just because the Angels haven't been in the playoffs enough for people to know that he is just a player way above so many, pretty much anybody else in the game and has been for a while. It's just, it's a shame that his career has gone the way it is. Maybe they'll get into some playoffs here in the coming years. My number one is just a guy that I'm fascinated with, and I think Ben is too, and i got Ted Williams at number one just because twice in his career for the World War II and for the Korean War, he steps away from baseball, but a 344 career average, 521 home runs with missing a couple of key years uh, in, in his career. Um, so I'm just fascinated by him. I think he might be about as good a hitter for power and average as baseball's ever seen. So Ted Williams, my number one. Imagine being alive and watching the Yankees Red Sox and watching Joe DiMaggio and Ted Williams play against each other. Unbelievable. Just unbelievable, right? Yeah, crazy stuff. A reminder, our Friday Greatest Games, we're going to go back to the year 1997 in our time machine and go back and listen to the Huskers game at Washington, one of the great, I mean great venues, Ben, for college football. The Husky Stadium sits right there on the river. People boat up, park it, and come on into the game. Great setting. Scott Frost is the quarterback. And a guy named Matt Davison was on the field. We may try to get a hold of him before the end of the week. That'll be fun to listen back to that game on Friday. Wonder, wonder if that guy's phone still works, if he's still taking <laughs> calls or not. That is one place that I was super jealous you guys got to go in yeah. Seattle not that long ago. Tater Martinez had a pretty big day yes, that day in Seattle. First true road game as a quarterback. Yep, and a guy from California that all the Pac-12 schools weren't sure was a quarterback. He put up some big numbers against the Huskies on that day. Nebraska was dominant in that game. We'll go to 97, though. Here's Scott Frost, Matt Davis, and that whole crew, part of that national championship season on Friday. Tomorrow night, another edition of our Husker Huddle with Jeremiah Searles. He'll sit down with DeMornay Pearsonell, who just signed a free agent contract with the Las Vegas Raiders. And we'll have another edition of our famous face-offs, brought to you by Famous Dave's. Good hour here. Fun top ten topic. Hope you enjoyed this hour here on Sports Highly.